Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I was joined again by my friend and colleague, Deborah Atkinson. She last joined me on the podcast at episode 165 in August of 2021, and it was one of the most downloaded podcasts of 2021. She is the hormone balancing exercise coach and fitness expert that has helped over 275,000 women flip their second half with vitality and energy. She is also an author and the host of Flipping 50 TV, as well as a TEDx speaker. Today, we spoke at length about some of the physiologic changes in perimenopause and menopause that impact weight training and building muscle, how to transition into the second stage of life as an endurance athlete and promote recovery, why there's a need for the prioritization of strength training in perimenopause and menopause, the role of volume, movement, zone two training, flexibility work, and HIT, the impact of hormone replacement therapy on muscle and bone health, biohacking, and her favorite supplements. I know you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Welcome back, Deborah. So good to have you back on the podcast. I was just saying it's hard to believe it's been like two years since our last podcast together. That's crazy. And we're in a time warp though anyway, aren't we? Mm -hmm. With the pandemic, I wonder often, what year is it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, there's pre-pandemic and then post-pandemic and everything in between. It always kind of like all gets lumped together. But I would love to kind of start the conversation today talking about, and you're a kinesiologist, so this is right up your alley. What are some of the physiologic changes that are happening in our bodies that are impacting our muscle health as we are navigating perimenopause and menopause. And I know we're really speaking to the loss of estrogen and how we become more catabolic, but I think this is something that is so important for younger women to understand because you can proactively be doing more than I did at that stage because I didn't know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is why I think it's so important to talk about what's happening in our muscles as we are aging. Yeah, so many things, really. I mean, there's <laughs> this is the entire hour and then some probably, but yes. I mean, it starts, of course, with the drop in estrogen and it's a roller coaster ride, right? In perimenopause, it's up and down and up and down, but trending down overall. And that means we are losing, I think, the 30% of muscle mass lost from early to late stage of perimenopause. That's crazy. You know, and there are in postmenopause, of course, there are significant losses there. But I think what we're really seeing, we have to say, wait a minute, if we could prevent the ones happening in perimenopause, we wouldn't see also these huge ones later. We would have slowed those down too. So for these younger women, our daughters, our daughter in laws, it's exciting. You know, I think, you know, we can be a little green with envy thinking they're going to transition through this so much more differently that in 50 years, the conversations they have, we probably can't even imagine mm-hmm. what will they be talking about. So I think that's the number one. When we lose estrogen, we all default. I think when we think muscle, we think testosterone. 
muscle testosterone, da, da, da. And maybe growth hormone, if you have a little bit more physiology, you realize that's an important thing or that's a conversation at least that the bros have about their need for that and muscle. But estrogen is a stimulator for muscle and for bone. And for women, that's huge when we come to the edge of that cliff and we dive off and we lose that significant amount of stimulus, something else has to take its place. So this is where, you know, the things I say or hear, and I'm sure you do too, it's like nothing I do that used to work works anymore. Well, yes, you don't have the hormones you had anymore, so it won't. Something else will, though, good news. So we have to change the way we lift weights, change the way we eat, prioritize our sleep at a time when prioritizing sleep gets tricky. And all those things have to fill in the gap for the estrogen loss. But then what happens when the estrogen comes down, the cortisol goes up. So we've lost the stimulus for muscle, the anabolic support. So we become much more anabolic resistant and have a hard time gaining muscle, which is what that means. But we also then have more cortisol in our system, which is catabolic. So that's going to break us down. And that's true for every woman. But for those of you who are type A, push through, you can count on me no matter what, like no matter how exhausted I am, you know, and you know you're out there, right? You're probably tuning in because you go the extra mile. That's you know, we're cutting ourselves off. We're probably doing the work, but we're stressing ourselves out maybe by life is already really busy. I'm already really tired and overloaded, overwhelmed, and I've got to get this done. Like thinking of exercise still as a quota. And so driving ourselves deeper into the ground. And then with cortisol, belly fat, but then the insulin resistance as well. We have less muscle, less muscle stimulus. We have less uptake of that blood sugar. So for those of you who gained weight, it probably deposited in the belly. For those of you that didn't gain weight, you may have had it relocate and take up residence in places where it wasn't. And it's maybe not feeling as attractive to you or the waistbands are a little bit tighter. I mean, all of those pieces really are physiology that occurs with menopause. And then that's how we need to change the exercise to make it different so that we can kind of account for all these negative things happening. Yeah, I think it's so important to have a sense of what's changing so that we understand that we ourselves have to kind of flip the narrative, not just internally, how we're talking to ourselves, but also understanding that when they talk about this pause, or as Dr. Luann Brizendine calls it, the upgrade, which I love that reframe, it's helping us understand that in this pause time of our lives, it gives us opportunities to change not just our mindset, but the way that we perceive how we treat our bodies. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of us, myself included, my 20s and 30s, I was either in school, I was either a new practitioner, I was you know, newly married, newly a parent. I mean, there were years where I think I was just on autopilot. And then heading into my 40s, I had to get reconnected with myself as an individual and get really honest, like what's working for me, those really hardcore conditioning classes that are almost like CrossFit Mm -hmm. that I did for years and years and years. I was like, my joints hurt, my wrist hurts. What am I doing to myself? You know, Mm -hmm. why am I forcing myself to do something that perhaps is no longer in my best interest? And I think with your background in particular, because you were an endurance athlete for a long period of time. And Mm -hmm. I know that many of my listeners are also endurance athletes. And so 
for you, what was that mindset shift like for you? Because you did Ironman competitions. I mean, really hardcore. Well, I think about it every day. I mean, <laughs> seriously, it's like I stand up and say, hi, my name is Deborah. I'm a recovering endurance athlete. And every day, like an addict, it does not go away. I thought about it this morning. I was like, I still have that craving to maybe I'll bring that bike back into the living room. Honestly, it sat in the living room on my trainer since August 1st, because I was like, no, I'm going to do, I'm going to commit. And then <laughs> there's an incongruency in here. Like, I know this is not good. I know I need not to do. And yet I still want to. There is a part of me that gets fed by doing that. But I really need to substitute things like long hikes, you know, that are lower level that I can pace and I can turn around you know, if I need to. But it's just not serving me. And so it took me like being really slapped in the side of the head with, guess what? We're going to cause you to gain 12 or 14 pounds, you know, of inflammation essentially is what it was. It wasn't fat weight, although I was definitely noticing relocation. I was training for the last Ironman I did, and this was in 2019 and kind of been in this women's hormones and fitness for 2013, right? So I knew better, but I kept thinking, well, this won't happen to me. You're special. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, we know this kind of special is the problem, (laughs) but you know, it did. And it, it happened to be a perfect storm. So it was the June that I hit menopause. Literally, I had been exposed to mold the December 23rd before that and mitigating all of that. And it wasn't really mitigated. So I was being exposed for about five and a half months, had to suddenly move to, I didn't want to move. I loved where I was living. And so that relocation, all of it, you know, and I was still in the midst of, I'm committed to this. And if you know, Iron Man, that's like a $750 backpack if you don't do it. I mean, you're just going to go pick up a very, very expensive experience and nobody wants to do that. So I went and I knew, you know, it was just going to be the worst of it. I had already done. I'd done all the damage. Race day was just like icing on the cake. You know, it didn't make it worse, just didn't make it better. So I couldn't turn that around, you know, knowing all the right things to do and how to get back on it. I had just gone too far. So I really had to reach for help. That's when I had to start using HRT to help me more adaptogens, really, really cutting back, treating myself like someone with adrenal insufficiency, because I'm sure I did. I didn't test, but I know that's what was happening. So yeah, I've taken one for the team, y'all. Don't go there. (laughs) But I think it's also very helpful to know that you are still this endurance athlete, put a little bit of an adrenaline junkie, I would imagine. Mm. And you are finding that you are navigating this second stage of your life and finding ways to stay stimulated, Mm -hmm. but not overdoing it in terms of the amount of stress that your body is undergoing with physical activity. And I think this is a lesson for all of us, because there are things that I did in my 30s and early 40s that I mean, now I wouldn't want to do. And it's not that I'm incapable. It's just the recovery would be so prolonged that I probably wouldn't be particularly happy with myself. And so when we're talking about these physiologic changes that are happening, these changes that are happening with hormones, understanding the role of inflammation and oxidative stress and low estrogen, low progesterone, you know, low testosterone in most instances, what are some of the common mistakes or 
common issues that you see women in perimenopause and menopause doing with regard to physical activity beyond just the perhaps too intense exercise? And I'm not trying to pick on any one person. I'm just, I myself see people doing things that are not serving their best interests. If their desire is to change body composition or if their desire is to get rid of some fluff or if their desire is to be able to, you know, improve how much weight they're using in the gym, et cetera. What are some of the common things that you feel like are women are consistently or perhaps not realizing they're doing that are undermining their their best efforts? Well, number one, I think is prioritizing strength training. They're not prioritizing strength training at all. And then if you could go deeper into that layer, it's the how to do strength training. So I think many of us grew up with as young adults, as group fitness junkies, you know, and feeling, well, if I'm going to BTS or body pump systems, you know, I can check that box off. And, you know, when I wrote, you still got it, girl, that was 2015. There was a study included in there that says like body pump is not proven to enhance bone density, you know, and the reason for that, I don't think we could say collectively that's everybody. It's true for everybody. There may be individuals in that, but there wasn't statistically on participants enough because most of us are not picking up heavy enough weights. If you've got one instructor, you got 30 or you got 50 people in a classroom. I mean, have you noticed there? I know there are small studios now, but in a fitness center, they're making the rooms bigger. And that means there's more people. And one pair of eyes, maybe on you, it's just not going to fly. So they just care that you can see the instructor on stage and they're putting them up on a pedestal. That's what they're doing. So I think people don't know to pick up heavy enough. They don't know that they're doing good form. You know, so that I think is problematic. If you know yourself, you know how to manage your own technique, you know what good form and poor form is, and you've got a sense of what weights to pick up, great. But if you don't, a lot of times if you go into a group in the studio, you know, if you don't get there early, the weights you need may be gone. You know, and so you're just left to default. It may be too heavy. It may be too light. That's not a good situation to be. But inevitably, that is what happens. The last person in the room is probably not doing anything close to what she needs to be doing. So there's that. And then there's, I think we get volume wrong. So this is true. So the research says that women over 40 will do better with greater volume. And yet there was a huge article with many studies referenced in Idea Fit magazine. And this was pre-pandemic, so it was probably five or six years ago, but it sent alarms off for me because I was so worried all those trainers and fitness instructors reading that article were going to read more days per week more sessions, more, you know, repetitions, more, you know, frequency, longer sessions. And that's absolutely not how we want to get the volume. We want to get the volume by doing heavier weight and fewer repetitions. So it's actually like a math equation. So when we calculate volume and what have you done, it's the reps times the weight and the sets. So it's this times this times this. And if you do that with, say, a really heavy weight and five repetitions and five sets, and then you compare that to, say, if you were doing 
20 repetitions with a really light weight and you were doing three sets, which is kind of much more standard, you know, do the math for yourself and think about that. The volume comes better with that heavy weight, fewer repetitions, and then we're all going to have a stopping point. Like there's a point where I couldn't go heavier or I know I am going to start to have those achy joints. I'm not going to be recovering as much or I'm going to start to have more aches and pains. And that's, you know, hopefully we don't get there before we back off. But we also then need more recovery and we're not taking that. And that's where this volume thing gets tricky. Volume of exercise, but also volume of recovery has increased. And that never means have a day where you are always exercising. It's like it never means don't take a day off. You should. I think formal exercise in your week, you should have at least one or two formal days of exercise off. And that's where you're playing golf, you're going for a hike, you're stand-up paddleboarding, you're being active, you're moving your kids to college or home, or you're actively moving. The whole reason why we strength train in the first place, right? In addition to wanting to look good. I mean, we can't discount that. But I think we mistake the kind of volume that we need and we mistake the value of strength training, but the real kind of strength training that we need. It's not just checking a box anymore. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, 
fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. I think that's such an important distinction because I was reading that in one of your blogs. So to make sure this is really clear, we want a certain amount of time off for recovery in between weight training. So that doesn't mean that you lift heavy four days in a row. What you're really advocating for is maybe we lift heavy on Monday, we lift heavy on Thursday, we're physically active in between. Mm -hmm. And it's more important that we're doing heavier weights and fewer reps. So meaning sometimes, you know, I I have a trainer that I work with and sometimes it'll just be two reps. Well, I always add a third or a fourth or a fifth, depending on what we're doing, that you're going to get more bang for your buck doing that. Now, where do things like zone two work or flexibility work fit into your week when you are creating a program for your clients or you yourself personally? Yeah, great question. I think there's so much controversy about zone two. It almost is like a buzzword right now. (laughs) So let's define it, first of all. So what I call is kind of bottom of a pyramid if we're looking at equilateral pyramid. The bottom or the base of it is zone one. That's just our moving around all day. And unfortunately, for many of us, that pyramid doesn't look like that anymore because we sit so much. So it's like our zone two is movement that we're doing on purpose because we sit so very much in leisure and in work that we are offsetting what they didn't have to offset 50 years ago. We have to get back the activity. When they didn't have the obesity, we should look and take notes at what was their life like. I remember asking my mother if she you know, ever had thought about exercising and she was like, oh, heavens, no. She was like, we did chores. That was our exercise. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) You know, so she was put off by that whole idea. But we need to just move. And so I think zone two officially when you're, when I'm testing somebody on a treadmill is I'm looking for that point underneath where they go and have to take that first big, deep breath consciously in. It's like you're just moving at an all-day pace. You could go for hours and there's real no limit. We're not necessarily increasing your cortisol level by having you do this. In fact, I think we do the opposite. It 
least if you can get out in nature and do it. There may be a little to say for people who don't walk. They're walking maybe dancing or Zumba or to music or something else. So those kinds of things where you could do and you love it, there should be a little bit of a joy factor to it or it's with a pet that can make a difference too. I think that's the kind of activity that is pivotal for supporting blood sugar levels, supporting insulin sensitivity and helping with that insulin and cortisol issue that we've got. And if you're lifting weights regularly, every time you do that zone two movement, you're moving more muscle mass. So more sponge absorbing that blood sugar, it's all win, win, win. And you are actually enhancing recovery by moving. Active moving always trumps or active recovery always trumps passive recovery. Everybody likes a massage, but it still doesn't work as well as you just moving and getting circulation going. And when your muscles are sore, you're talking about, you know, the Mm -hmm. days in between lifting, maybe you're doing some zone two training, you're encouraging people don't be just because you're sore, don't sit around. It's better to be physically moving. So it helps with lymphatic, you know, drainage, it helps with soreness, you know, moving some lactic acid. It's interesting to me how common it is. And I tend to be someone that has tight hamstrings, like I think probably like a lot of people do. And when I pull a hamstring, I mean, it's, you know, foam roll. I mean, it's all the things, Theragun, all the things I'm trying to do to get that. And the tendency is when something hurts, you don't want to move. You're really emphasizing why it's so important for recovery to keep moving. Even if you, you know, maybe you have a little bit of hesitation because your hamstring is sore. It doesn't mean stop moving. It's just encouraging us to remain as active as we possibly can be during the day. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at what are you trying to do? You know, I mean, that probably when it's sore wouldn't be the day to go stair climbing or, you know, climb up, you know, a hike, but to passively walk a little bit lighter or lower. I'm a new fan of power plate. I mean, what I would do is bring you over and have you sit down with your legs stretched out on the power plate for a little while to warm them up and increase and enhance circulation and lymphatic flow and then move you, you know, and maybe on a bike instead of walking even or running definitely. So what can you do that has less micro tearing of the muscles when you do it? That can be something to think about. Do you find that a lot of women at this stage are needing to work on flexibility or core work? Not per se that it's all focused on core, but whether it's Pilates Mm -hmm. or yoga or those kinds of modalities, do you feel like there's certainly a place for them in an exercise program? I definitely do. And I think one of the most foundational pieces of doing core work is because we're hitting our pelvic floor, pelvic floor strength. So it's ironic, but this is 2023 as we're doing this. And in 2013, never, ever, ever after 30 years, had I heard any woman tell me she had pelvic floor issues, no woman ever told me she had prolapse of any kind. And, you know, I was shocked when someone asked me that question on YouTube. And I was like, no, I never have. So either women were not aware of it, not even talking to their doctors about problems that they were having and had no idea to deal with it or were not coming out, you know, and and getting support saying, I know I need to do this exercise for muscle and for bone health, but I've got this issue and not getting any solutions. So I'm glad people are talking about it more. But I think one of the biggest things we need to do is learn how to breathe and that helps core and that helps pelvic floor. And we just are such shallow breathers kind of top one third of lobe of our lungs, really, instead of taking deep breaths. So anybody right now who's holding tension in their upper back and neck, I feel, yeah, I have to work 
on this every day too, but we're not breathing very well. It's part of the reason. Yeah, it's interesting because I think some of it is a a shame piece. You know, women didn't want to talk about pelvic floor problems. They didn't want to talk about prolapse. I remember my grandmother before she passed away and she had delivered five babies vaginally. She was a nurse and she was embarrassed to tell me that she had both a, a bladder and a rectal prolapse, probably from long labors and pushing and all those things. And she just said, women didn't talk about these things. We just kind of suffered in silence. So I think as more awareness builds around this. People understand you don't have to suffer with stress incontinence. You don't have to suffer with doing jumping jacks and leaking urine. I mean, that doesn't have to be the case. And it's interesting in other cultures, pelvic floor therapy is part of the postpartum period. Like that is a given. People are referred to pelvic floor therapy automatically. Whereas here in the United States, you practically have to beg for it in order to get a referral, which I think is such a shame because there are a lot of women who either have traumatic deliveries, they have big babies, you know, they've got a third or fourth degree tear. And it's like, goodness, of course, things are going to be not working quite as well. And then conversely, as we're talking about like zone two and flexibility work hit, I think there's so much misinformation about hit. There are people that say, oh, I'm going to do hit. And then they go do it for an hour. And I'm like, that's not hit. Yeah, <laughs> It's definitely not hit. So let's yeah. talk about it. Let's define it. And then tell us what differentiates hit from, you know, like long chronic work, you know, the Mm. chronic cardio bunnies that I see running all the time. Yeah. Still today, right? Yes. Yeah. So I think first of all, you got to know, you've got to get breathless, right? And and if you're not getting truly breathless at the end of it, you haven't done high intensity interval training. I think that still is a source of confusion, you know, just alternating, working a little bit harder and not working as hard. That's actually not your high intensity interval training that has the purpose of boosting your VO2 max, your oxygen carrying capacity, which is very tied to longevity and or mortality, depending on which side of the line you want to talk about. But there's also the increased benefit in fast twitch muscle fibers that can occur if you're doing agility reaction skill kinds of hit. You know, if you're doing a hit on a bike or you're doing hit on an elliptical, it's a little less reactive, a little less agility coming through with it. But if you are, you know, bobbing and weaving and you're doing some ladder drills or you're responding to a ball coming back to you from a net or at a wall, you know, that'll be a little bit more reactive and you could be killing two birds with one stone, which is I think what we're all after. Like, how can you spare me? I want to work on balance. I want to work on bone and ground force jumping kinds of things. And I want reaction skills. You know, they can be all one in the same and not have to be a part-time job to get them all done. But what we're after is really something short. And if you feel like you could go an hour, you're actually not doing high intensity interval training, or most likely you're landing yourself on the couch for a week and then having to start all over again because you're so exhausted. So what should happen is you should walk away after high intensity interval training and you've actually really stimulated your brain. So it should almost feel like you're on a high. You should have this sense of mastery and achievement that tends to be common if you're really truly doing high intensity interval training. That almost never happens doing moderate intensity chronic cardio, mostly we just kind of feel blah and tired after that, like I did it, but don't feel great, especially now in midlife. So we're really after raising the roof on our VO2 max and getting quote unquote cardio in far less time than it would take. But the real solution here is that it's far more hormone balancing. 
than doing that chronic kind of cardio because we're using cortisol in the way it was meant to use. We're using it for 15 to 30 seconds, or maybe you're going slightly longer, but you don't want to make it too much longer because then we become aerobic. So you're just doing it and then you're kind of stopping, totally regrouping, letting yourself recover. And that's the way cortisol was meant to be used in the big picture. You know, you prepare for a speech on Friday at work and you're super nervous about that presentation and you're gearing up and you're all tight and your tension and you don't sleep the night before, but then you do it and it's all gone. Well, unfortunately, you know, we don't live like that so much anymore. We're so connected that we are just onto the next thing as soon as that's over and we don't actually get that reprieve from cortisol. So exercise in the right way can help you use cortisol in the right way, purge a little bit and then recover, purge a little bit, recover. And that whole thing can actually help you purge better than like a long slog. I remember when my mom was kind of in her final couple of months, you know, and everybody's a little bit different, but I think exercise is a way to also move emotion through us. And at midlife, I mean, we're throwing a lot of things that we need to move through us. And I found that I couldn't go for long walks anymore. I, for some reason, it just, that just was not working. I couldn't, I felt like I needed to be somewhere else or something might happen and I could hop on a treadmill a few more times, probably a week than I normally did, 20 minutes and just kind of purge some of that anxiety. And then I was okay and I could deal. But as soon as she was gone, it changed. You know, I I didn't have that. I didn't need it. I kind of had the release, but I think you can use it to your advantage to kind of harness cortisol as energy. Maybe if you've got excess, then you purge a little bit of it and come back to your, here's where I live. And this is my good homeostasis spot. So I think it's got a purpose, but truly four to six times doing a burst of exercise, recovering with whatever time it takes you between, we call it now not HIT, but HIRT, H-I-R-T. It's a terrible acronym, really, when you think about exercise, but it just means repeat training. And the studies are saying that as long as you reach the high and you can take whatever recovery you need, as long as you reach the high, you get all the benefits and potentially less risk of injury, especially if you are doing something that's reactive skill kind of thing. Because we know we watched people in Tabata over those years when that really soared and we saw injury rates skyrocket. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that distinction for people, if they're trying to differentiate, are they really doing HIT? is understanding that if the purpose of HIT is not to overstimulate cortisol, it's to have these short little hits of cortisol, which is physiologically the way it's designed to be. I think that that can really help us find that reframe. Now, you touched on something that I think is important when we're talking about being middle-aged and doing whether it's high-intensity interval training or we're doing strength training or zone two, whatever it is that we're doing, we know that changes in estrogen actually impact collagen of our connective tissues, which has the potential to impact joint stability as well as injuries. And so one of the common questions is always, how do I, what can I do proactively to lessen the likelihood of hurting myself? And I don't think any of us are going into exercise and saying, I anticipate this is what's going to happen. But I'm also at the stage of life where I'm like, I'm very likely going to be more cognizant of what I'm doing because I definitely don't want to end up with a tear, a sprain, a strain, et cetera. Yeah. 
I think a lot of women are like that who use exercise to negate their stress. I mean, the last thing that I want is to be hurt because that's like my drug of choice, mm-hmm. right? I need that and it totally get it. And so we want that positive addiction, actually. So for women who are in perimenopause, still cycling, whether it's regular or irregular, that's a little harder to predict. But so you're bleed day one, but day 10 to 14, what we find is that is perfect timing for strength training heavier strength training because your tendons are more rigid, which means like you just have this strong foundation, this great base to build greater strength. However, your ligaments are lax. This is when you're more likely to, you're moving laterally, sprain the ankle. So you have brand new shoes with really lots of tread on them and you're on carpet, you better pick those feet up. You're going to catch them and you're going to go down as opposed to catching yourself. So that's an important thing to consider is that there are best times to do strength training. That's really to your advantage, especially if you eat a little bit more protein during that period of time to gain strength. But if you must do HIT during that time, do it on a bike or an elliptical where you're exceptionally safe. You can't screw this one up. Okay. So that's for you. But you also want to think if you're, okay, I'm exercising like this. If I go really hard with my strength training, maybe you don't need to go really hard with your HIT that week. You dial that down a little bit so you're able to recover and kind of optimize the strength. So think of that wisely. And life is like that too. Life really stressful. My mom passing, right? I decreased what I was doing most of the time, wasn't doing more. So that's a key. But so now women in menopause, postmenopause, or unpredictable with when they're cycling, we've called this as a strength and conditioning coach, we've called this periodization forever. I mean, how funny is that? Really? I mean, I just got to think maybe somebody up there knew that we were going to be talking about women and fitness all the time, but we still want to basically treat it, but we can decide, you know, what is our week one or week two or week three. So the way we cycle, most coaches will do three weeks of a cycle or four weeks. I choose four because it falls into a month and then to a quarter of the year and it just is easier to organize for me and I think for a lot of people. So we'll do three weeks where it's kind of we come in week one, week two, we're going to work harder. Week three, we're going to work harder. Week four, we're going to come back down and really recover. We're going to do some valuable things during that week. We're still going to stimulate the muscle, but we might do a lot more body weight yoga, you know, where you are doing down dog, up dog, you're doing chaturanga and you're doing, you know, strength training with rotation, flexion, extension, lateral flexion. So we're getting a lot of that functional movement in. Maybe we've done it during the other training cycle, but not as much of it. Because when you're doing traditional to really focus on metabolism, it is more linear. So that fourth week has lots of value. And we do that periodically. So every month we're doing it, every quarter, then there's at least three recovery weeks, not just a workout, but a full week so that you're allowing yourself to rest. That might be the week where you're doing your prep for food. You're focused on that. You're getting yourself a massage. You're going on vacation. You're doing lots of things with the family that maybe you you couldn't fit in as much otherwise. So that's kind of how we program it. But we just then cycle because we can't always build, build, build and say we're always going upstairs. You've got to take a okay little break. But that next time you start week one, you're not coming back to the same start you had. You're higher still than you were because you've taken the break. 
I love that. I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, we aren't hitting the gym hard week after week after week, that we do have to have a, a point of recovery and kind of resetting ourselves before we move on to the next month. Now, what is the research showing in terms of strength training and impact on our bones? We know that we lose like 10% of our bone. We lose 10% of our bone in the first five years of menopause. And that's when we're at greatest risk for osteoporosis. So I think for many women, they understand the interrelationship of strength training and walking and, you know, stimulating bone because actually those hormone changes, especially estrogen and progesterone changes, actually they increase, they upregulate bone breakdown as opposed to bone building. So those are the things I think about, like what does the research show about how much strength training and how often to support mm-hmm. our bone health? Yeah, so glad you asked. And it's so exciting, actually, to be a woman postmenopause now because we are going to create the results, you know, the data for, again, for our daughters to come through. So think of this in 1995 when I first personally started lecturing on osteoporosis and osteopenia. I had to define it, people didn't know what it was. Had to draw pictures, you know, and look at this is modeling, this is remodeling. You're like a pancake cooking, you know, and here's what's happening, but you're getting too many holes and they're not filling in. And now it's household words. But back then, we thought that once you got diagnosed, I mean, it was like bubble wrap. We got to, you know, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, contraindicated. Don't, mm, ah. And it was really, people were nervous. They felt like, I remember having clients come to me and they were in tears, you know, about to retire, thinking they were going to retire to their dream home in Fraser, Colorado. If you're listening, you know who you are and ski, spend their life skiing. And all of a sudden you're a petite size two told you have osteoporosis and you're at high risk. You know, no doctor wants them downhill skiing like a bat out of hell, you know, which is probably what she was. But now that's not what would happen. We know if you were already doing it, you should probably keep doing it. We got to have the joy factor in there as well. And we got our strength training and doing the right things. And today, since about 2015, the research since then has been coming out on women postmenopause because for a very long time, researchers were afraid to impose and do no harm, you know, comes out in research and they say, you know, it's not ethical to take a limited population and and apply terrible stress to them. Well, finally, they were like, we've got all these women who've had osteoporosis for 20 years. They're not fracturing in exercise. They're fracturing in unique things in life. You know, so isn't it about time we start studying this? So amen to that, whoever said that argument. But we're doing high impact and high intensity exercise. Like some of the protocols we've described five sets, five repetitions, or maybe five to seven. So there's what Dr. Belinda Beck out of Australia calls two in reserve. So you might do five or six reps and say, I know I could do two more, but you're actually not going to force yourself to do them just to conservatively not risk injury of the connective tissue and the ligaments and joints. So we're seeing from the results of those kinds of studies and high impact. So they were having women like hold on to a bar, jump up to it, and then jump down, do box jumps. So that's, you know, loading it, not just with a jump in place, but a jump from a box down to the ground. So really increasing the gravitational ground force, no injuries. And they loved it. 
the high intensity exercise. They also had that feeling of mastery and achievement, accomplishment that no other researcher has ever documented. You know, researchers who'd participated in research prior to this said, you know, with this, we've never seen before. You know, like they kept coming back, the dropout level was low, adherence high. That's always a factor too. But the injuries based on exercise was nil. So that makes it exciting. These studies are really longitudinal. So they're long, they're over time, which matters partially because you have to start safely. We do start with lower weight, higher reps and progress over time. And that's one thing that we all have to remember, right? That, you know, no matter what, bone density may be your key or metabolism, in which case both points you want heavier weights for your advantage, but we have to start later. And it takes a series of weeks and actually months, two to three months to get to a point where you're lifting heavy enough. And, or you find the point where I can't go heavier because I feel vulnerable. Something's going on. But you then do it slowly enough where you stop yourself before an actual injury occurs, which is good news. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk free. They have a 365 day full money back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data 
and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer-term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Yeah, that bodily awareness, I would imagine, is very important. And working with women, some of whom probably aren't yet on HRT, some who are on HRT, how do you see the recovery? And I know this is a small sample size, but over time, how has HRT impacted your clients in terms of being able to build and maintain muscle, build and maintain bone? Because I'm starting to see, like I always say, my N of several hundred, if not a couple thousand, you know, the the sleep piece is where I see the most Mm -hmm. benefits, you know, in terms of like consistently, if women come to me with HRT, they're sleeping through the night. Yes. Anecdotally, what I can say is that both for muscle and bone density wise, I would say there are fewer to compare. And the reason is it's obviously it's a longer period of time before we're going to see results. Somebody first gets diagnosed and is then aware this is my key priority. It's another year, at least until they're going to do a scan in most cases. I mean, some women are more proactive, but definitely the women who are on HRT are seemingly getting better results. I say that saying probably easier results. They don't have to fight for it quite so much. They're getting that little boost from the estrogen is my guess. Yeah. Um, I feel like I owe you an answer to how much. I'm not sure I really answered that coming back to the bone density. So two to three times a week for bone density. And this is where, you know, I have a little incongruent, you know, we really like two times a week of flipping 50 because so many women suffer from that adrenal fatigue, not recovering and or time is everybody's number one obstacle to exercise. And when we talk about muscle, we know that the benefits are there and they're insignificant difference between two or three times a week. With bone stimulus, it could be different. But again, I think we have to come back to our overall endocrine system. How are we doing? there? How do we feel? And say, okay, maybe I should do other things with ground forces, with high impact or as high impact as anyone listening can do safely. Five to seven days a week is the recommendation, but listen to this because you can do it in two or three minutes. So don't get overwhelmed here. This is 10 to 20 impacts and about four sets of it. 
that's two minutes or less of exercise. And you can do one now, you could do one at lunch, do one in the afternoon and one tonight. And imagine 10 little hops in place. That's it. And you've done one. If you like to jump rope, you probably do this naturally and easily. But it goes anywhere from, you know, walking, dancing, hopping, little jumping, jumping to a box, jumping off of a box, doing squat jumps, going lowest to highest ground force. And each of us, again, will have a line where, you know, I can do everything below this and these are okay for me. And that's your playground. So know that. And for those who can do high impact, you still wouldn't necessarily want to do super high impact every single day. And we want to do some side to side because that stress laterally is different than stress just down, down, down or forward and back jumping. That's an important distinction. So I'm curious, you kind of, you alluded to a power plate or a vibration plate. Where does that fit into all these other pieces in terms of our flexibility and our bone and our recovery. How does that fit into that? Oh my gosh. Well, so first of all, let me just say this. I was the biggest skeptic. So I should apologize to somebody (laughs) in the whole body vibration world because 15 years ago, I remember I was approached as the personal training director for a club and we wanted you to have this in your club. And I was like, no, that's, they need to be doing other things. They need to be doing functional work. And now I see it for what it is. I have one in my kitchen, so I'm using it every day. And I can lift heavy, but for me, it's like icing on the cake. It's like, I'm going to be 60 in not very long. And it's like, I got to take this seriously. Like, I'm going to pull out all the big guns. Like, what, what else can I do? And so I use it. When I'm doing a quick strength training work at home, I will actually do my squats on it. I will lie my back on it and do my chest press and I will stand on it and do bent over rows on it so I can do the full workout, what I call a real quick one, the basics on that. Otherwise, I'm using it for core on a daily basis, hands on it and planks, side planks. I'm, you know, doing a dead bug on it, balance agility. I have a foot that thinks it wants to have plantar fasciitis, but I'm not going to have it. So I'm standing on that every day. Y'all heard that here. I said it here. Ask me about how that's going later when you see me. But you know, the vibration is also helpful in recovering from injuries. When I spent six and a half years in Boulder, I worked at the club side by side, world-class triathletes. I mean, these are the ones who were in Kona doing the, the thing and finishing lung before before I was, you know, at dark and midnight. There, we were using it for injuries, you know, a hamstring pull, you sit on it. You've got something wrong with your elbow, your wrist, you're maybe going to plank on it or just sit on it and lie on the floor and put your calf up on it if you've got a calf tear. So the stimulation is lymphatic movement through the body, stimulating the vibration, the frequency, all beneficial. So for muscle recruitment, doing less, but still getting more. Those of you who can't lift as heavy, the recruitment of muscle is about 138% more than if you're not doing the weight training on it. So that's pretty good. That means the same muscles stimulated more. Other fibers are also recruited and and all of that is good for metabolism, obviously, and circulation. I have one in our house and I think it was Dr. Terry Walls who had convinced me that this was something worth doing. Admittedly, I'm not doing it every day, but I do enjoy it when I am on it. And sometimes I just stand on it and I'll do it at the end of my workout and my husband will walk by and he's like, I don't understand. And I just said, it feels good. If nothing else helps with lymphatic drainage, it feels really good. Yeah. What are your thoughts on infrared sauna, cryotherapy, mm-hmm. cold plunges, cold showers? 
Are these things you routinely recommend? Do you feel like this is, as you call, icing on the cake? If we're doing all the other things, then maybe we move these in. What are your thoughts on these modalities? So funny. There's serendipity and everything, right? So this morning, I recorded a podcast about what is biohacking? Do you want to do it? Because my audience is probably newer to some of those modalities in doing it. And personally, I don't like to be cold, but I just got in this last week a cold plunge. And, you know, so I've been in it twice. I stare at it most days is all I <laughs> but I'm getting mentally ready. Yeah. And I told my kids they're coming for Thanksgiving. I said, bring your swimsuit. And they're like, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> and yes, I do believe in it. And sauna saved my life. So I happen to have had one. I didn't buy it for mold recovery and detox, but I bought it for pampering. Honestly, I like to sweat. That's what I mm-hmm. like to do. And It does help in recovery. It's like a workout for your body. It also deepens my sleep. I it's amazing. But I like the hormetic stressor, you know, as intermittent fasting is, of course, is super helpful, I think, for stirring up that inflammatory response in the body and giving you a little bit of stress. But I love that, you know, brown fat, let's trigger that, let's control that a little bit more. And I know that I need it. I've been suffering from migraines, you know, and so, you know, I'm using it as a way to divert blood flow, honestly, and kind of give myself a shock to the system elsewhere. So I am a big believer, but I think we're also, we're biohacking on a regular basis anyway today. And some of us don't even realize, you know, if you change the type or the timing of your exercise, you change the type and the timing of the food you eat, the order that you're eating foods, if you have a Fitbit or an Apple Watch and you're looking at your steps, I mean, all of that is biohacking. Hapking, you're looking to probably not just watch it, but to achieve a certain goal or change it. So I think all of these have their place. I think there's that, you know, core target thing we want to start with. Do the basics. Those are the basics. I mean, lift heavy shit and, you know, <laughs> sleep well, you know, say I love you more frequently than you say something else and, you know, eat good food and then begin to expand it. And what else am I willing to do next? Yeah, I think it's so important to kind of focus on the basics first. Like I always say, before you add in 15 supplements, make sure you dial in on your nutrition and make sure you're sleeping. I love that you admitted you don't like being cold. I'm the same way, which is why I feel like I need to do cryo. I've got this cold shower down, but I... I'll do cryotherapy probably twice a week. And anytime I do infrared sauna, I sleep so well. And it's interesting. Our friend Aaron Hartman was talking about some research about infrared saunas are particularly good for releasing these endocrine mimicking chemicals. So we're exposed to all of them. But when we're sweating out these toxins, it's actually a very effective way to get rid of some of these endocrine mimicking chemicals, which I thought was really interesting. I was like, okay, I probably need to do it more than twice a week. Before we kind of wrap up today, I had a lot of questions about what are your favorite supplements to support muscle gains and recovery? I know we're both fans of creatine, but what are your thoughts on essential aminos? Mm -hmm. Um, Are you a proponent of protein powders? How about collagen? What are the things that you like to suggest to your clients? 
Yeah, so definitely. I think, first of all, food first. I mean, get it from your diet if at all possible, because in that food, in the, the bison or the venison or the, you know, shrimp or the whatever your choice is, there are also vitamins and minerals and other nutrients that you're not going to get when you get it from a supplement. So that first, you know, I am, of course, we carry protein powder at Flipping 50. So we walked into that one. So yes, of course. And I don't love it as a substitute for other things that give you all those minerals. So I like it as a vessel for if you're going to use it as a part of a smoothie or a shake, put some vegetables in there, put some cucumber, some rice cauliflower in there, get a little bit of fruit in there, get some healthy fats in there, make it just like it would be if you were sitting down to a bowl or a plate of food. Don't short sheet yourself with those nutrients and vitamins when you're doing that. And pay attention to our using a protein powder that is high in all the essential amino acids. So collagen and that confusion, I think of collagen versus is it really full of essential amino acids for muscle on a higher level? So there's lots of confusion. Collagen alone is not enough. We need more than that. So collagen for joints and ligaments and connective tissue though, and the bone, absolutely. I think, and your hair, skin, and your nails, I'm a fan. So I would use both, but don't confuse like the protein that you need in a day. You know, so much of that collagen can count, but it shouldn't be a high percentage of your overall diet. And once you've got the protein piece covered and the timing of it, which can be also very important, then I think if you're not reaching what you need, then adding essential amino acid supplements and distinguishing that over branch chain amino acids. I get asked a lot by women, should I do branch chain amino acids? And I say, first, like, what's your diet like? I mean, because if you're not getting enough protein in, jumping to branch chain amino acids is like, that's too, too far. Like, we need all the essential amino acids to be accounted for first. And then maybe if you're saying, okay, here I am and I'm doing it and I'm still not seeing results, then maybe do you want more branch chain? Yes. But that should come later. And with creatine, I would say, yes, everybody do it on a daily basis. For bone and for muscle, I mean, really, I'm not hearing anything negative about use of it. Nothing, just benefits. And for much older adults, even not just now at this point when we can stand to gain it and make sure that we're not losing it in the first place. So I think all of them have their place on your shelf. I love the, again, the message about nutrition first, using these for specific purposes. It's interesting. I think it was Dr. Don Lehman on Twitter. Someone was asking him about EAAs. And he said, if you're getting at least 100 grams of protein in a day, they're probably unnecessary. And I thought that was a really good distinction. So maybe you're traveling, maybe you haven't Mm -hmm. hit your protein macros, maybe that's the time to, to utilize them. And then, you know, it's interesting with creatine, because I've interviewed Dr. Darren Kandow now twice, and he's a creatine researcher. And he was talking about how for crossing the blood-brain barrier, so for traumatic vein injuries, jet lag, you know, mental health, sleep peace, and bone health, you need more. So anywhere from eight to 10 grams of mm. creatine versus three to five for muscle strength, and which I thought was really interesting. But I yeah. agree with you. I think the worst thing that I've heard people complain about is some people feel a little bloated or they understand the mechanistically how creatine works. It's monohydrate. So it's going to hydrate the muscles, but it's water weight. For those people who weigh themselves obsessively, that might be challenging. But Stop understanding that. that's yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like put the scale away. Just understand that, you know, our weight fluctuates day to day just based on what we're eating and how hydrated we are. Well, 
Deborah, I always love our conversations. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to listen to your amazing podcast, work with you if they're interested in doing that, et cetera. All good things are at flipping50.com. So flipping50 spelled out, all words, no spaces, and flipping50 TV on social especially YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. So that's where all the good things are. And you can learn more about options for working with me or us in groups over there. Thanks so much for having me. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe, and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.